0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: Okay, um, you're all very welcome to this week's Early Modern Research Seminar. Um, delighted to see some new and different faces, which I think reflects today's topic, which straddles disciplines time and space, and I'm really delighted to introduce today's speaker, um, Dr. Christopher Pastore, from the University of Albany, normally, but from the Trinity Long Room Hub this year, and he's a visiting Marie Curie Sklodalska fellow here um, at Trinity um, for the years, and it's really, really good to actually get him to speak have one of the seminars, which I think all visiting fellows should do and don't all do. So I'm delighted he's doing that. And he's, um, Well, he's here, he's associated with Trinity's manuscript book and print cultures theme. But his interests range quite widely quite into environmental history as well. Christopher um, describes himself, I think, narrowly almost, as a social and cultural historian of early America and the Atlantic world. His research focuses on the human relationship to nature to water in particular um, his PhD is from the University of New Hampshire and he's the author of between land and sea the Atlantic coast and the transformation of New England published by Harvard University Press in 2014 and during his time here at Trinity his project has been focusing on examining the science of the sea and specifically how knowledge of marine animals plants and the environment was constructed and disseminate it both around the early modern Atlantic periphery and among the metropolitan centres of Europe. So I think today very much is a cross between Atlantic history, environmental history, maritime history. And its title is A, a Thousand, Thousand Slimy Things, Natural History of the Sea from the Bottom Up. Um, and just before I hand over to Christopher, and while we're waiting for the last few people to come in, I just want to point out that next week It's reading week. We don't have a seminar. The Early Modern Seminar will return the following week on the 11th of March, which apparently is in two weeks' time, which seems unlikely, um, when our speaker will be Professor Karen Harvey from the University of Birmingham, who will be talking, rather differently, I think, about epochs of embodiment, 18th century body politics and the material body. So, another fascinating paper to come in two weeks' time. But I'm going to hand over to Christopher, who's going to tell us about thousands, thousands of slimy things. Okay.
0: Well, thank you very much, Patrick. I just wanted to say thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, thanks to the Long Room Hub for having me as well. Uh, it's been uh, so far a, a wonderful time. I came here in August, and I'll stay through August. And uh, 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 I'm just having a really nice time here. So I'll talk a little bit about my project. Uh, my talk today, again, is called A Thousand, Thousand Slimy Things, and it takes its title from lines in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's 1798 poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. In it, a sailor shoots and kills an albatross somewhere in the southern ocean, becoming his boat, dooming his crew, who die and turn into ghosts, And summoning from the depths a thousand, thousand slimy things. Lost amidst a slimy sea, the mariner lamented that his soul was in agony. But he soon emerged from his misery to see those creatures in new light. They were, he admired, robed in rich attire. Blue, glossy, green, and velvet, black, they coiled and swam. And in every track was a flash of golden fire. Marvelling at the life around him, he rejoiced. And at that moment, the albatross, which had been tied around his neck, fell into the sea. The wind stirred, and the spirits of his shipmates rose and sailed him safely back to port. A tale of human hubris and environmental tragedy became one of self-scrutiny and atonement. The slimy sea, as Coleridge called it, reflects both, both the imaginative qualities and material realities of marine life. For many landlubbers, the sea is filled with terrible things that slither and ooze, that emerge from the muck and leave one's soul, or at least one's nose, in agony. But as marine ecologist Jeremy Jackson uh, has shown, overfishing, pollution, and ocean acidification have quite literally ushered in, quote, the rise of slime, a sea increasingly depleted of oxygen and dominated by jellyfish and algae. Planktonic red tides threaten human health, and algae outbreaks are poisoning fisheries, closing beaches, and destroying tourism. Although the prevalence of these ocean slimescapes is a relatively recent development, the human understanding of and relationship to the lower orders of marine life has a much longer history. Indeed, slimy things connect the ocean's past, its present, and its future. Marine microbes, worms, and oozes provide narratives of oceanic and, by extension, global origins. While the unnatural histories of algal blights, Jellyfish blooms and plastic pollution augur an age of ocean, oceanic decay and global decline. As a transitional element between liquid and solid, one that accompanies birth and follows death, slime, opined philosopher Timothy Morton, is the sacred taboo substance of life itself. Shape-shifting and awful in its generative and destructive powers, slime and the creatures that create or constitute it frequently challenge religious beliefs and taxonomic hierarchies. As both metaphors and material substances, slimes appeared along the edges of geographic knowledge, among the frontiers of technology, and near the limits of accepted norms about who should conduct science and where and how it should be conducted. And so a closer look at the sea's slimy things sheds light on how we have understood and attributed value not only to the ocean, but also to nature more broadly. Today, I'll talk about how the swirling currents of science and art of sensory experience and the human imagination shape the contours of Atlantic expansion. My hope is that by following the circulation of slimy things, um, it will provide a few payoffs. Close focus on the movement of plants and animals tends to blur imperial boundaries, erode nation-based narratives, and challenges challenges the assumption that European technology, or courage, charted the principal pathways Of oceanic connectivity. Tied to the rhythms of Atlantic ecologies, yet subject to the pressures of imperial economies, marine plants and animals forged important continuities between old world and new, between the deep sea and continental interiors, between, between tropical temperate and boreal ocean biomes. Writing the history of Atlantic expansion from the bottom up, moreover, reveals new actors in the process of natural knowledge production, including, among others, Native American boatmen, African wreck divers, and even pirates. And some slimy things in the sea reflect not only anxieties, but also the many possibilities that came to shape the age of exploration. Slimy things from sea serpents to sea anemones appeared regularly among the frontiers of natural knowledge. Slime coded the divisions of life, dampened the divine's role in reproduction, and filled the gaps between vernacular and book knowledge. Slime, in other words, was certainly a material substance, but was also a product of perception, an imaginary, made viscous by doubt and confusion at times, and diluted by corroboration at others. So I'm going to tell you some stories that touch upon some of the ideas I've been playing with. Not everything is actually slimy per se, uh, but I've tried to pick some examples that show how slime, like windrows of seaweed, often coalesced among the edges of early modern natural knowledge. Both the seasoned sailor and committed scholar, Christopher Columbus compiled oceanic information by corroborating hard-won experience with stories and printed accounts of exploration and world geography. According to Columbus's son, Ferdinand, who sailed with and later wrote a biography of his father, Columbus, who had a hunch that one could sail west from Europe to Asia, had interviewed numerous sailors who had ventured great distances onto the western seas. One, pilot, one Portuguese pilot told Columbus that at sea he had found a piece of carved wood drifting before a persistent wind. Columbus's brother-in-law, Pedro Correa, had discovered several large canes that had been driven by the wind toward European shores from, quote, some neighboring islands or perhaps from India. Pine trunks, the people of the Azores attested, were sometimes washed upon their shores after the wind had blown for a long time from the west. In one instance, they had discovered several, quote, covered uh, covered boats or canoes, as well as the bodies of two men with broad faces and difference in appearance from Christians. What ocean currents, Columbus believed, hinted that something existed somewhere beyond the horizon. These accounts seem to confirm speculations penned by classical and medieval scholars that Columbus had carefully collected. Pliny, for instance, had asserted that wood washed from distant shores formed island-like rafts at sea. Seneca had claimed that in India, strange floating stones sometimes Uh, Formed drifting islands. Columbus also looked to St. Brendan, who had noted that there were islands beyond Cape Verde and the Azores. He referenced charts charts that showed the island of Antilia, which the Portuguese surmised could have been the fabled island of the seven cities. By corroborating his notes with published works, Columbus became a seminal figure in the production of oceanic knowledge during the age of exploration. Naturally, he was selective about his sources, placing far greater emphasis on those that supported his goal of finding a westward route to Asia. His son and biographer then curated Columbus's notes further in an effort to secure a crown pension for his family. But a closer look at Columbus's methods and observations nevertheless reveals the possibilities and limits of oceanic knowledge production and circulation during the early modern period. Realities mingled with mythologies. Textual sources conversed with local lore and observation and all of it was poured through the filters of memory and time. Indeed, whether they were real or not, those harbingers from afar, driftwood, sodden canoes, outlandish corpses, when cast upon the shore and slickened by seaweed, placed on display the many mysteries of the sea. Between roughly 1450 and 1750, European knowledge of oceanic navigation, geography, and natural history expanded dramatically. After 1439, Gutenberg's printing press promoted the efforts of compilers, including Columbus and his contemporaries, and led to the publication of maps, chronicles of exploration, treatises on marine technology and practice, and later, colonial promotional materials at an unprecedented scale. As Michel Foucault posited, a careful reading of Renaissance literature revealed that uh, what he believed was an abrupt epistemological shift on which mythologies gave way to more empirical ways of knowing. Dorinda Outram has criticized Foucault's assumption that these structural changes were universal, pointing out that natural history production was very different in the Anglo-Irish and Anglo-American contexts, whereby natural historians aimed, quote, aimed to give a unified account of human and natural activities within a particular region. Knowledge production, in other words, varied widely from place to place. It also drew from the past at the same time it marked a break from it. As Brian Ogilvy has shown, Renaissance naturalists often corroborated their observations with accounts from classical antiquity, thereby melding humanism, empiricism, and theology. In turn, they created new cultures and economies of natural philosophy, and ultimately what they call the new science of describing, or what Ogilvy called the new science of describing. Scholars of the Enlightenment agreed that the evolution of science was mutually constitutive with religion. The shift toward science marked no clean break with the past. Rather, as oceanic uh, literature scholar, scholar Steve Metz has argued, old ideas gave way to new ones in an uneven process of, quote, wet fragmentation. Perhaps for our purposes tonight, we might liken these transformations in natural knowledge to slimy agitation, a process by which old ideas, subject to changes in wind strength and direction, were in time whipped into waves and blown into foam. Along the boundaries of oceanic knowledge, apocryphal tales of marine creatures filled a slimy sea. Sea serpents and other inexplicable creatures often lurked along the edges of the unknown. The farther one sailed from the metropole, the more frequently these creatures appeared. In 1535, for example, Gonzalo de Oviedo uh, described Hispaniola as a land filled with lizards, dragons, and diverse other kinds of serpents. Four years later, Olus Magnus filled the edges of his Carta Marina with numerous fantastical beasts. But for others, those creatures were much more than artistic flights of fancy. In 1638, John Jocelyn recounted the story of a sea serpent at Cape Ann, Massachusetts, that lay coiled up like a cable on a rock by the sea. When two Indians and an Englishman passed by in a boat, the Englishman motioned to shoot it, but the Indians warned him that if if he did not kill it outright, all of their lives would be imperiled. Serpents swirled near the waters of Iceland into the 18th century and even made a late appearance off the coast of Gloucester, Massachusetts in the 19th century. Similarly, mermaids and mermen also lurked along the limits of oceanic knowledge. Columbus had claimed in January of 1493 near Hispaniola, he had seen three mermaids. A little more than a century later, Jocelyn recounted uh, the story of fowler Michael Mitten, who while hunting from his canoe of among the islands of Casco Bay in Maine, encountered with a triton, or merman. When, however, the merman placed a hand upon the edges of the canoe, Mitten summarily chopped it off with a hatchet, leaving the creature to sink beneath the surface, dyeing the water with his purple blood. A Dutch translation of Nicholas Dennis' uh, Dennis's account of Nova Scotia described a crew of French fishermen who in 1656 witnessed a peculiar commotion that was not caused by anything which had... Uh, the form of a known fish. Noticing that the monster was basking in the sun, the fishermen approached quietly, one dropping a rope over the head of the merman, for it was, in fact, a merman. Alarmed by the rope, the creature shot down through the loop and away through the water. The merman soon reappear- reappeared a short ways away, close enough that the fishermen could see that its fingers were, quote, firmly bound to each other with membranes, just as those of swan's feet or geese feet. The merman brushed out, of his eyes, his mossy hair, which they attested seemed to be covered over the whole body as if it had been uh, as, as if it were seen above water. Realizing that the fisherman had designs on him, the merman disappeared beneath the waves. Similarly, writing in 1620, Richard Whitbourne avowed that a decade earlier he'd seen a merman off the coast of Newfoundland. He described it as beautiful and well-proportioned, having round about the head all blue streaks resembling hair down the neck. When, however, the merman attempted to board one of his vessels, his men, frightened, struck it a full blow on the head, whereby the merman swam away, and the fishermen fled to land. As conceptually complex landscapes, tensioned between livable land and an unknowable sea, salt marshes often played host to preternatural creatures and phenomena. In 1620, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Colony, noted that shortly before the Wampanoag Indians came to make friendship with the English that had settled New Plymouth, their Pollocks, or medicine men, had gathered in a dark and dismal swamp for three days, where in hard and devilish manner they cursed and, and ex, uh, execrated them, the English, with their conjurations. Indeed, the indeterminate nature thank you, of swamps harbored their darkest fears. In 1638... John Winthrop, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, noted an incident with James Everill, a sober and discreet man, who was traveling with two companions. He saw a great light in the muddy river. The creature flamed up and then bolted, assuming the figure of a swine. Winthrop reported that it ran swift as an arrow towards Charleston, Charleston, and so up and down about two or three hours. Taking to their lighter, Everill chased the beast through the tidal creeks but when it was over, they found themselves carried quickly back against the tide to the place where they had come from. In Winthrop's account, the ambiguous nature of the littoral served as a staging ground for a battle between good and evil. That the creature traversed the marshland swiftly, something neither man nor animal could do across salt pans and sphagnum, was surely a sign of its otherworldly nature. The swine-like devil thwarting pursuit commanded the flow of water through a confusing maze of tidal channels, causing even a sober and discreet boatman to become lost, confused, or simply exhausted by rowing against us against with current. Winthrop's demons suggests that this liminal space, where land and sea converge, was for some, for some disorienting, a materially and imaginatively muddy transition zone between the familiar and the unknown. A similar Marsh Devil haunted John Milton's mind later that century. So eagerly, the fiend over bog or steep, through straight, rough, dense, or rare, with heads, hands, wings, or feet pursues his way, and swims, or sinks, or wades, or creeps, or flies. Like the demon described by Winthrop, Milton's devil, assuming animal form, or at least employing the chimerical beast's ability to swim, wade, creep, and fly, slipped through an impenetrable bog with little effort. This amphibious devil, one endowed with the means of locomotion for land and sea prowled the inner tidal, a space that had not yet been bounded by the scope of human understanding. <laughs> if mud and muck and the marshes could generate otherworldly creatures, so too could swirling currents and in isolated islands. So mysterious were the rips that roiled the mouth of Saint jo- the St. John River at the head of the Bay of Fundy that Indians imagined a supernatural presence in the whirlpools that formed with each change of the tide. Trapped within a great hollow in the rivers that stretched between three and 400 feet across, a large uprooted tree bobbed at times above the surface, and others sank below it. Nicholas Denise, who traveled through the area in the mid-17th century, explained that the Indians rendered it homage by tacking beaver skins to it with arrowheads. When on occasion their manitou, the tree, did not appear, they, the Indians, took it for a bad omen. As a result, they were so generous with their tribute that the poor Manitou has his head so covered with the arrowheads that one could scarcely stick a pin in therein. If the enigmatic eddy had commanded reverence among the indigenous people, the French remained incredulous. But even they were puzzled when, after attaching ropes to the tree, ten oarsmen, while rowing with the current, were never able to pull it out of the hollow. There were coastal spaces, moreover, into which Native Americans refused to venture. In Acadia's Lunenburg Bay, for instance, Nicholas Denise described an island which the Indians on which the islands, uh, Indians never landed. Through an interpreter, the Indians explained that if one were to set foot upon this island instantly, a fire would seize upon his privy parts, and they would burn up. If some of the stories coming from the New World emphasize extraordinary wonders, during the 16th and 17th century, currents and their ability to create long-distance connections between islands became a subject of curiosity, or more sort of systematic investigation. Sea beans, drift seeds, or Fava de cologne, Columbus beans, as they were known in the Azores, were some of the more mysterious things that washed up along shore. Probably the earliest accounts of sea beans came from 1570, and Matthias de Lobel's Adversaria Nova, the Anglo-Irish herbal, or natural history of the time, that made reference to drifting seeds. Lobel noted that he had received a number of sea beans from ship captains, who had sailed both to Africa and America. But he had also received specimens from Dame Catherine Killigrew of Cornwall, who explained that over the years she had found numerous drift seeds washed up on the beach near her home. Some quote, some were floating, wrote LaBelle, others of them digged up from where they lie buried in the sand by the shore, as if they had been drifted from the New World by favoring southerly or westerly winds, as is the faith of the Cornish book that dwell by the English sea. Lobel's willingness to entertain the faith of the Cornish book suggests that although the sea was still held many mysteries, local knowledge held an important role in unraveling them. Although Renaissance humanists had been perfecting the art of description, cataloging the things they saw, and importantly, traveling to collect specimens and stories since the early 15th century, they had largely given the oceans short shrift. It wasn't until the establishment of the Royal Society in 1660 that the sea received sustained institutional attention. In June of 1661, the Society advanced a set of instructions to Edward Montague, the Earl of Sandwich proposing six topics to investigate during his upcoming naval voyage to the Mediterranean. In it, they urged him to observe the ocean's depth, salinity, water pressure, bioluminescence, and most notably, the tides and currents. This concern with ocean circulation put the sea bean mystery front and center. In 1675, Sir George Mackenzie noted in the Royal Society's Philosophical Transactions that Molucco beans had been washed ashore on Scotland's Western Islands, where he noted They are found fast to the stalks, which the common people supposed to be sea tangles, and laughed at me when I said they were land beans. To confirm his suspicions, Mackenzie wrote to the Earl of Seaford, who explained that he had frequently found sea beans along the shore of the Isle of Lewis in the northern Hebrides. So common were they that locals used the bean husk for snuff boxes. The Earl also explained that he had found a cabbage tree on the shore. Between the sea beans and palms, He surmised that the ocean currents were carrying the seeds from great distances, although he believed that the freshness of the kernel made it seem more probable that they came by the northern passage and kept in the cold conservatory than in the warm baths of other progress. If Mackenzie and the Earl of Seaford agreed that the beans were terrestrial plants drifting among ocean currents, the local islanders, unlike those in Cornwall, scoffed at the idea, imagining them to be fruits of the sea. In some cases, even more learned observers agreed. In 1684, Sir Robert Sibbald included sea beans in his catalog of marine plants. Sibbald's ideas seemed to confirm the growing number of reports of strange submarine gardens. From wreck divers, who were most often African, the Irish-born naturalist and philosopher Robert Boyle received descriptions of trees and fruits growing at the bottom of the sea. Boyle was told that upon descending to recover, thence, some shipwrecked goods, the divers discovered a sort of fruit that was of a slimy, soft consistence about the bigness of an apple. Upon reaching the surface, however, that fruit summarily withered. Other Other divers reported that under the sea there grew a pretty store of certain sorts of trees bearing leaves, almost like those of laurel. But of what virtue or other use? He had no curiosity to inquire. Yet another diver explained that off the coast of Mozambique, there was a store of trees that bear of certain fruit, which he described to be very like that of the American, of, of which the Americans are, are wont to call a caillou, or the cashew. Although Boyle's reports seemed apocryphal, they nevertheless suggest that he and the Royal Society were keen to know what was in the ocean. In his willingness to take seriously far-flung accounts from African divers, The growing science of the sea was both literally and figuratively an exercise in oceanic inquiry from the bottom up. Perhaps because of their great mobility or taxonomic ambiguity, sea beans often had supernatural qualities. Sir John Morrison, writing about the Hebrides sometime between 1678 and 1688, explained that the sea casteth upon the shore sometimes a sort of nut growing upon tangles round and flat, sad brown and black colored, of the breadth of a dollar, some more or less. Morrison explained that the kernel of the bean was an effective remedy for the bloody flux. He also explained that women wore them for ornaments, sometimes decorating them in silver, brass, or tin according to their abilities. The bean also had the virtue to make women fortunate in cattle. One smaller white colored bean known as the nut, uh, Saint Saint Marie's nut, the St. Mary's nut, had the virtue to preserve women in childbearing. Similar mythologies washed ashore in Iceland, where the broth of boiled sea beans was said to ease the pains of childbirth. And in Norway, where drinking beer from a sea bean shell was said to aid in the delivery of afterbirth. In Donegal, tradition holds that drinking the liquid from a sea bean would help a barren couple conceive. In Kanemara, uh, folk, folk tales explain that sea beans were kept, uh, they kept the fairies at bay, but mostly... Drift beans were simply sources of good fortune. In Dingle, for example, girls wore them around their necks for luck. In all cases, the sea bean was imbued with something otherworldly. It defied the boundaries of land and sea, of tropical and temperate climates, and even of materiality. Was it a vegetable or a mineral, a nut from a tree, a stone from the sea? And it held the preternatural powers of spontaneous generation, of breathing life into barrenness and facilitating passage into the world. It was the Irish-born naturalist Sir Hans Sloane who finally began to unravel the mysteries of the sea bean. Sir George Garden of Aberdeen had sent Sloane a selection of drift seeds. Sloane, who having spent a year and a half in Jamaica, when, where he penned his detailed natural history of the islands, identified three of the beans in the 1695 article in the Royal Society's Philosophical Transactions. One bean that had been found on the coast of Kerry was known as the cocoon in Jamaica. Two others had been cast upon the shore of Scotland were known as the ash colored knicker and the horse eyed bean, on which Sloan bestowed the self reverential taxonomic name, Mycuna sloane. Although he admitted that how these beans had made their way to the, quote, Scotch Islands in Ireland, seems very hard to, de- hard to determine. He nevertheless believed it conceivable that the seeds had fallen from Jamaican trees into the rivers whereupon they washed into the ocean and, quote, may be carried from thence by the wind and current through the Gulf of Florida or Canal of Bahama and into the North American Sea. How they should come to rest in their voyage, I cannot tell, he conceded. But he surmised that since ships typically return to Europe by sailing north into the westerly wind, that the beans would follow a similar route. As evidence that this could be possible, he cited Ferdinand Columbus's accounts of driftwood canoes and bodies. The sea, he believed, created dramatic, even improbable connections. But his first-hand observation corroborated with written records seemed to confirm a deeply connected Atlantic world, one in which the motion of the ocean minimized the distances and differences between the West Indies and Ireland and Britain. But when the ocean lost the dynamic qualities that channeled experiential knowledge, Slime developed. During the 1670s, Boyle, on behalf of the Royal Society, advanced several tracts intent on understanding the ocean's inner workings. In one case, the navigator and sometimes pirate Sir Richard Hawkins, or his Boyle, sorry, Sir Richard Hawkins, had informed Boyle that when he had been calmed in tro- the tropics, the sea for want of motion and by reason of the heat began to stink. Stagnant water, Hawkins concluded, was particularly noisome, for he explained that were it not for the moving the sea by the forces of the wind, tides, and currents, it would corrupt all the world. In another story related to Boyle, Hawkins explained that around 1590, while sailing with a fleet near the Azores, he had spent the better part of six months becalmed the The sea, he reported, became so replenished with several sorts of jellies and forms of serpents, adders, and snakes, as seemed wonderful, some green, some black, some yellow, some white, some diverse colors, and many of them had light, and some were a yard and a half or two yards long, which I had not seen. I could, hard, I could have hardly believed. So thick were the writhing creatures that hardly a man could draw a bucket of clean water of some corruption, uh, clear of some corruption. The creatures, it seemed, affected the crew. Hawkins, some of them, Hawkins suggested, had become crazed, while others fell sick of this disease and began to die apace. The anxieties of exploration showed themselves at the edge of the unknown, causing panic and fear among some, and if Hawkins is to be believed, even death among others. Mired in the stagnant waters of navigational uncertainty, Hawkins's men, though likely witnessing spawning conger eels in the Azores, had succumbed to the psychologically corrosive effects of slime. But if eels more serpent-like than any other fish, hinted of death. They also had mysterious generative qualities. That the common European and American eels spawn deep in the Sargasso Sea between the Bahamas and Bermuda, and then ride the Atlantic gyre until they swim up the rivers where they feed, grow, and live and uh, live their lives, had uh, through even the 20th century imbued eels with a sense of mystery. Where did they come from? Writing in 60 AD, Pliny the Elder believed that eels produced offspring by rubbing their bodies together. Um, the, shed, the shedding skin from that process formed new eels. Opian, the Greek naturalist writing in the 2nd century AD, AD, believed their elvers were produced from the slime itself, from the eels. But the eels remained steeped in mystery. Some claimed that eels grew out of the mud. Others claimed that illegitimate children of priests turned into eels to save themselves from disgrace. Still others believed that eel slime, when mixed with wine, could make a drunk sober. In short, the slime of an eel, or the mud from which it came, had the power to produce new life, shield one from shame, and return his wits about him. The shape-shifting qualities of slimy things extended well into the 18th century. In 1726, Ben Franklin, while sailing from London to Philadelphia, through the Gulf Stream found within the clump of sargassum weed a fruit of the animal kind very surprising to see. He described a row of small bivalves near which was a small pea crab. He guessed that the clams were crab embryos and that all the rest of this odd kind of fruit might might be crabs in due time. Ultimately, he, like others, believed that the boundaries between ocean animals and vegetables were fluid and could change over time. The nature of oysters was similarly, similarly confusing. In 1784, uh, sorry, 1748, the Colonial Assembly of Rhode Island deliberated for 48 hours whether oysters were fish or vegetables. At the time, seed oysters were bedded uh, by oyster planters who used planting boats. In that sense, oysters were vegetables. But oysters were also known to be animate. They snapped clothes when shells were prodded. Their briny meat was eaten in the streets and sometimes pickled like pork and exported in barrels. But they were also mined, in the, mined the lime in their shells, which was used for mortar. Presaging future parlor games, oysters were at once an animal, a vegetable, and a mineral. Although, they ultimately, although ultimately the assembly concluded that oysters were fish by four votes, the split nature of the vote suggests that taxonom- taxonomic identity was anything but clear and possibly shaped by economic decisions. Corals were also a cause for considerable taxonomic confusion. When Griffith Hughes, the rector of Saint Lucy's parish in Barbados, penned his Natural History of the Island in 1750, he expressed particular interest in corals. Although he explained they are, in general, vegetables, they were the lowest kind, of this cla- uh, the lowest class of this kind, because they bear at least here neither leaves, fruit, flowers, nor fruit. He vowed they were beautiful, and when pulverized, esteemed good to free the stomach from acid source juices. But, he admitted, he was confused why terrestrial plants needed warm air and light, while these submarine plants grow to a great length in above 40 fathoms of water, where the heat of the sun cannot penetrate. Coral had confused even Hans Sloan. One critic chastised him for writing that certain stones, including the limestone marble found in Wales, was a sort of coral. But that confusion was widely shared. When in 1703, the Dutch naturalist Antony van Leeuwenhoek noticed the branched body of a polyp floating in in a pond, he assumed it was a plant. Thirty-five years later, a young tutor named uh, Abraham Tremly of Geneva saw a similar creature. But upon closer examination, saw what seemed to be a tiny tentacle moving particles toward a mouth and concluded that it was likely an animal. But upon dissecting it, it regenerated. By the middle of the 18th century, others, middle of the century, others confirmed his experiments and applied them to sea polyps. But these creatures, so varied in appearance and complex in their organization, continued to defy classification. It was the sea anemone, or the animal flower, a single enormous polyp that became the object, object of Griffith Hughes's silent admiration, he wrote. In search of the creature, he climbed down a sheer rocky cliff facing the sea. This is in, Barbado, uh, in Barbados. Into a cave which washed with spray from crashing surf. He found a submerged rock covered in a fine radiated flowers of pale yellow or bright straw colored, slightly tinged with green. He said they resembled the garden marigold, but explained that he simply could not pick one. For as soon as my fingers came within two or three inches of it, it would immediately contract and close together its yellow border, and shrink back into the hole in the rock. But it left, if left undisturbed for in the space of about four minutes, it would come gradually in sight, expanding, though at first very cautiously, its seeming, its seeming leaves till at last it appeared in former bloom. Hughes explained that it made a strong appearance of animal life, but that its shape was classed among vegetables. But upon close examination, he saw what he imagined to be a flower had legs, They were bringing prey into a yellow border, which fully convinced me that it was a living creature. Yet he couldn't understand how its it's, it's, uh, exceedingly delicate nervous system worked. It was, he avowed, inexplicable. Such is the insensible gradation, which has progressively continued through the whole creation, from animate to inanimate, rational to irrational, that we know not where precisely to determine their respective boundaries." At first blush, the polyp, the building block of corals, and the flower-like blob in the inner tidal cave was simply a curiosity. But proponents of Cartesian philosophy, which sought to remove God from everyday workings of nature, the polyp and its ability to straddle the animate and inanimate, the rational and the irrational, and ultimately to spontaneously generate, was proof that life could be created through material mechanisms rather than by divine intervention. For Newtonians who believed that nature bowed to God's command, the polyp was a threat. If life could simply arise from the slime, it threw the order of nature into question. And this went well beyond the finer points of taxonomic difference. Natural philosophers with deistic and atheistic leanings saw the polyp, including most notably Julian Alfred de la Matrie, as a natural challenge to the great chain of being and by extension the divine right of kings. So awe-inspiring were the sea anatomies to Hughes that he called them chimerical and referred to them as phenomena imbued with a surprising instance of almighty power. Perhaps a vegetable, perhaps an animal, and perhaps something else, the tiny, slimy polyp threw the order of nature and society into disarray. As a subject of systematic scientific inquiry and one that helped bring about an apocal shift in human relations, the polyp embodied some of the most important promises of the Enlightenment. Similarly, other slimy creatures, from sea serpents and eels to oysters and pea crabs, revealed important things not only about contemporary conceptions of the sea, but also deeper understandings of the human place in the natural world. Natural philosophers wanted to know where the oceans came from, what they were made of, and how ocean creatures came to be. And they committed much of what they witnessed to print. The sheer volume of maritime books that were produced during the early modern period ushered in a new age of ocean literacy, one in which knowledge of the sea, once reserved to those who worked it, became integral to Europe's commercial and religious expansion. The establishment of formal scientific societies in the mid-17th century provided a new institutional basis for the study of the sea and, the public, and publication of its findings. Their efforts were driven not only by phil, uh, philosophical curiosity, but also by the contest of empire. As Elizabeth Mankey has shown, control of the seas was more important to the process of colonial expansion than control of the land, for it was the process of, quote, mastering ocean space that allowed for the construction of 19th century's land-based empires. Oceanic knowledge provided a means to national wealth, prestige, and ultimately global power. But slime, a substance often steeped in legend that conveys both the germs of life and the essence of death, perhaps tempers that narrative of triumph. It forces us to reframe the construction of oceanic knowledge as something that's produced in bits and pieces along the periphery of the natural world, and often by non-Europeans or among European non-elites. As Coleridge suggested at the end of the 18th century, slime often appears just beyond the limits of human understanding, where alarm or downright fear awakens a sense of moral purpose and provides, as it did for the ancient mariner, a means of spiritual and material deliverance. Coleridge captured this tension between apprehension and opportunity in an age of political revolution, economic transformation, and romantic awakening. So perhaps it is time to take a closer look at the people whose curiosity drew them into the slime more recently as well. And perhaps we can learn something from their fears and assurances. After all, half the animal phyla on Earth today consists of tiny, slimy myofauna that squirm between the grains of sand, Marine plants and algae produce 50% of the Earth's oxygen. And benthic oozes provide a veritable library of the Earth's climatic history. In other words, slimy things are essential to the Earth's natural processes and our understanding of them. Scientists have posited that roughly roughly 517 million years ago, burrowing marine worms may have helped establish the global geochemical cycles that made life on Earth sustainable as we contemplate an ocean filled with jellyfish and algae perhaps among uh, among them we can find that flash of golden fire that could play a role in shaping the Earth's future as well thank you